Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this afternoon's lecture. I'm Robert George, the director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. And it really is uh, my pleasure to welcome uh, all of you here to our lecture in the series on America's founding and future. Uh, I must say that it's a personal delight uh, for me to welcome back uh, to Princeton uh, my friend Bill Crystal. Uh, he literally today, uh, well, he never needs an introduction. Today, in particular, he doesn't need an introduction since we arranged for that uh, puff piece in the New York Times, so you will all know <laughs> who he is. Uh, Bill says that he's never seen a publicity operation quite like ours, even <laughs> having worked in White Houses and so forth. We're welcoming Bill not only back to this university, but back to the uh, academic community. He uh, is himself. Uh, a former professor at the University of Pennsylvania uh, and at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. He earned his BA and PhD uh, in government uh, at Harvard, and he is back at Harvard again this semester uh, teaching a course on contemporary issues with uh, Harvey Mansfield, who has also uh, spoken uh, under the auspices of the Madison program here at Princeton. Uh, Dr. Uh, Crystal, of course, worked as chief of staff to uh, Dan Quayle uh, during the uh, famous Murphy Brown episode and before uh, and after, and he claims all the credit for the subsequent conclusion of the Atlantic Monthly that Dan Quayle was right. Uh, Dr. Crystal uh, is here to talk with us today about Under God, is Religion at the Heart of America's Culture War? Bill, welcome to Princeton. Thank you, Robbie. Uh, the, uh, thanks for reminding everyone about Murphy Brown. I was say one of my many moments of political genius. I remember we, uh, I don't know if, well, if you remember this, but the vice president gave a speech in May, I guess, May of uh, 92, 1992. We went out to California. This was two weeks after the L.A. riots. And people really, which was really an alarming and depressing uh, event for America, and uh, he wanted to address this. He was the first senior administration official who, to go to California, as I recall, uh, right after the riots. And he thought it was important to you know, say something about it. And so actually we put a lot of work into the speech. We consulted various social scientists, James Q. Wilson, others, read a lot of material. You know, what was the problem that led to this degree of alienation and uh, uh, anger? Uh, in inner cities in, in America, it's wealthy, you know, prosperous country that in other ways was so successful. Um, and he, he gave a long, serious, thoughtful speech, um, discussed uh, everything from economic policy to you know, urban policy, but he felt he couldn't avoid the issue of family breakup, which was uh, many social scientists at this point had concluded was really central to the problems of, of, of the inner city. And um, I remember when we were working on the speech, and he worked on it a lot, and speechwriter worked on it a lot, and I was chief of staff. I worked on it some. And I remember we discussed, uh, he, want, he, he really went out of his way, he wanted to go out of his way, to make the point that this wasn't just a problem for black Americans, for African Americans, that the problem of family breakup was a society-wide problem, and that in a sense you don't want to stand up and beat up a lot of, you know, 16 and 17-year-old girls for having babies out of wedlock. Obviously, they're responsible for their actions, but as are the, the men who fathered those children. But the whole society as a whole was, was sending, the society as a whole was sending certain signals about the unimportance of families and 
uh, and especially of uh, fathers. And, and, and right at that time, Murphy Brown had aired this episode in which um, she was pregnant, allegedly, and was having this baby. And the running lot joke line in the series, I, mean, I guess, I can't say I ever watched it, but that was one of my mistakes. Um, <laughs> The running joke line in the series was that, you know, who needs a father and, you know, who, why do one even want a father? Ha ha, and all this stuff. And so the vice president went out of his way so as not to look as if he were, you know, kind of a wealthy, you know, middle American, uh, Anglo-Saxon American beating up on inner city uh, poor kids who hadn't had much opportunity. He went out of his way to attack Hollywood and those wealthy, privileged types who had, were inadvertently, um, encouraging or legitimizing this kind of behavior, uh, not just for themselves, but for, for other Americans for whom the consequences are much more serious, obviously. So he had this paragraph in the speech about uh, and what does it say about our society, that, you know, what, what, uh, what does it say to these young uh, women in the inner city when Murphy Brown makes fun of the notion of, that her child might use or could need a father uh, at home. And I remember flying out, he gave the speech at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. It was a Monday. And I remember we flew out Monday morning from uh, D.C. on Air Force Two, and, you know, you gain time going west, so we left just at nine that morning. It was a noon speech. And I remember on the plane, he was going over the speech one last time, really going over it carefully, paragraph by paragraph, and he got to the Murphy-Brown part, and we were trying to cut it a little bit anyway. It was a little long. And he said, you know, Bill, maybe I'll take out this Murphy-Brown thing, you know. I said, <laughs> it, it could be misinterpreted, you know, and... Uh, and I cheerfully said, oh, no, Mr. Vice President, <laughs> leave it in. No one will notice anyway. <laughs> he, uh, he gave the speech. And um, actually, what's interesting, if you look at the New York, this would be an interesting case study for any you know, political science students here or people who study the media or, I don't know, the politics in the media. He gave the speech. And if you look at the print press the next morning, the Washington Post and New York Times, it was well covered for a vice presidential speech. I think it was on page one of both papers. It was considered a major statement, a fairly strong statement of, let's say, a kind of conservative analysis of our urban problems and of the family breakup and all that, but treated very respectfully by the press. And the Murphy-Brown stuff was buried way down, the 34th paragraph, as I recall, of the New York Times article. No big deal. But the reason it took off was that... Um, the executive producer of Murphy Brown, a woman named Diane English, somehow this name sticks in my mind, uh, um, I guess both was I mean, genuinely annoyed and also was a, saw this as a chance, I'm sure, for her to get a lot of publicity for the show. And, and so she attacked a bitter attack on the vice president that, you know, well, if he cared so much about uh, these children in the inner cities, he'd support abortion rights. That was the heart, actually, of what she said. Um, and, you know, wouldn't be part of such a right-wing, uncaring administration, et cetera, et cetera. But focusing particularly on the, on the, on the, on the, the, the right to have an abortion. And she put out a statement, as I recall, saying this sort of mid-late afternoon, which then triggered questions to the vice president. And we had flown later that afternoon from L.A., of San Francisco to L.A. And we landed in L.A., which, of course, is Hollywood, the center of uh, where Murphy Brown is, and every other TV show, I guess, is produced. And um, he was asked about this at the airport. And he attacked back and said, this is just typical of Hollywood. You know, you try to make a point about family breakup and, and parental responsibility, and they think they want to have a discussion about abortion rights. And he had a pretty tough attack on Hollywood. And that's really where it took off. But that, of course, didn't make the next morning's papers. So it took sort of 24 hours later for us to get in, to begin this huge fight with Hollywood. I still remember the next morning, well, so we, we slept that night at a hotel <laughs> in L.A., 
I'm fast asleep. It's uh, you know, we had a busy day the next day. The phone rings at 4 a.m. And uh, you know, you kind of get worried when the phone rings at 4 a.m. And, and I pick it up groggily in my hotel room, and it was a very senior official in the Bush in the Bush White House screaming at me on the phone. <laughs> Doesn't even say good morning or anything like that. You know, what are you doing? How can you attack Murphy Brown? She's the second most popular per- woman in America. <laughs> I, mean, I said, why, why, what, what do you mean? Why is she the second most popular woman? I didn't, well, Barbara Bush is the most popular woman. <laughs> sort of a, a wonderful study and sort of loyalty to the boss, I would say, in the, in the White House. And um, so the White House got very nervous and backed off this attack, and there was en- there that endless articles about was Quayle out of sync with the White House, but then conservatives rallied to Quayle support, and we had a month of sort of somewhat funny, but somewhat useful, actually, uh, press coverage of this. And I do think he deserves credit for raising the issue. And as uh, Robbie said, the uh, Atlantic Monthly, about a year and a half later, had a cover story by the sociologist, uh, social scientist Barbara Defoe Whitehead, uh, which was headlined on the cover, Dan Quayle was right. Needless to, needless to say, they only published this article after the 92 election <laughs> and after, after Dan Quayle was out of office. But uh, the, um, it's, it was... Uh, but it was nice to be vindicated. We actually had a very good debate for a month. People, it's, there are a lot of interesting aspects of this. Clinton, uh, I first realized what a smart politician Bill Clinton was. About w- a week into this, he gave a major speech in Cleveland, which he chose to give on the topic of families. And a lot of it was just you know, sort of standard liberal and democratic stuff about how we needed you know, just a standard critique of the Bush administration and the bad economy was bad for families and all this stuff. But he went out of his way not to take I mean, he made a few jokes about Quayle. He couldn't resist, I suppose. But, uh, but he went out of his way, I'd say, not to take the side of the liberal left and of Hollywood. He went out of his way not to say that it doesn't matter, you know, what kind of family structure kids grow up in. And, in fact, he went out of his way to say, look, I don't, you know, think much of Dan Quayle. This administration has a lot to answer for and all this. But we need to take seriously the question of family break breakup. We can't just, uh, you know, we, we need to have a uh, move towards a kind of work book. Uh, era of cultural responsibility or whatever uh, phrase he used at the time. And it was a striking moment, actually. Not, well, not many people were paying attention as much as I was, I suppose, to what Clinton was saying about, <laughs> about Quayle, but it was a striking uh, instance of actually his beginning to take the Democratic Party uh, back to the center and just of his, his own um, intelligence, really, that, to see that even though Quayle was widely ridiculed, obviously, especially among liberal elites, and even though the speech conventionally was thought to have been a big political mistake, he actually saw that you don't want to really be on the other side of this issue. And I mean, to his credit, I don't think he believed, I mean, he did believe, he understood that Quayle was, was right to some degree. The debate continued for just another minute on this. The debate continued for another <laughs> I haven't thought about this in so long, you know. <laughs> so, I knew I could get you to talk. Yeah, right. It's you know, better than war and all these other things. The, uh, the, uh, the debate continued for another uh, you know, a couple of weeks, and then this was, I guess, the speech was given us, I recall, in early mid-May, and then in mid-late June, just at the end of the, of the school year, that is the, the sort of elementary and high school year, we went, uh, we were in New York, Vice President was in New York giving a speech, and then we, he did what all vice presidents and governors and senators do, which is, you know, visit uh, uh, schools and other places where their people are doing good things. And so we went across the river to New Jersey here uh, to, I think it was outside Hoboken, um, to a working-class, poor kind of area, I'd say mostly Hispanic, where um, there was an admirable after-school program where teachers and parents were volunteering their time to uh, help 
non-English speaking kids, kids whose first language wasn't English, learn English better. And it was one of those typical things. You go for 20 minutes and you, you know, praise them and all the TV cameras come and it's part of what you do if you're a politician. And it's a good thing to do and it highlights a good, uh, a good program and it was part of Bush's, you know, thousand points of light, kind of early compassionate conservatism, pro-volunteerism type, type, type message. So we went to the school. It was late in the day. We were tired. It was after the regular school day that this program took place with these volunteers. And I remember we met with the principal and talked briefly and she said, um, and I was the chief of staff, so she was kind of running the schedule just, you know, by me. She said, no, look, well, if it's okay, I think we'll have the vice president just visit the sixth grade class, and right now they're working on spelling. Um, <laughs> and I, uh, I said, fine, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and um, you know, actually, the way they did it, they, the way they do it, she said, is they have kind of a little spelling bee so the kids can compete and the winner gets a little prize. And, and so I, I said, well, you know, it just, it's been a long day, so it's just, he doesn't, you know, just someone will help and, you know, kind of give him the material and stuff. So, oh, yeah, yeah, we just have these cards written out and he can just take over for the teacher for five minutes and read some of the cards and the kids will spell them and they'll get it right or not and then he can, the TV people will be happy, they'll have their video and that'll be that. Say a few nice words about the program and, and we'll go on our way to DC. And, um, so he, he, we went to the class, a very nice class, very nice volunteer teacher there, um, and he took over for her, and she gave him these index cards with, you know, words written on it, and about the third word was potato. <laughs> um, and the vice president later told me that, you know, he was, I mean, he was tired, but a lot that he wasn't, you know, he assumed he wasn't really paying close attention. He, they gave him these cards, he figured he knew, they knew what they were doing, and so the kid, he says potato, this nice kid comes up to the blackboard and writes, P-O-T-A-T-O, and the vice president later told me, he said, he looked at it. I looked at it, and I thought that looked fine, but then I looked at the card, and the card said P-O-T-A-T-O-E. And um, so he said, you know, no, no, and so he figured, well, the card must be right. He said, you know, <laughs> he, he was never that good a speller, and, uh, and so he says to the kid, well, all these TV cameras going, you know, son, you've left an E off that word, and... Uh, <laughs> That was kind of the end of our family values uh, <laughs> crusade. We sort of had, we had to spend the next month dealing with potato jokes, and uh, that's a real that's a real no good deed goes unpunished uh, story. On the plane back that night, the vice president, <laughs> the vice president said to me, "You think that potato thing is going to really get national press?" <laughs> <laughs> At this point, I actually knew the answer, but I, I didn't have the heart to tell him. So, I, oh, maybe not. You know, there's a lot, there's a lot going on. <laughs> God. So, thank you for bringing back all those wonderful memories. Of the, uh, yeah. You um, get too high on that New York. Yeah, that was good. Off, if I can get good, good press like that for. For the Weekly Standard, I'll come to Princeton more often. I, uh, I've been teaching at Harvard all term, and they haven't done anything for me, so I actually you know, have to make that point. I, I just I did want to warm up for Princeton by teaching this class at Harvard to see, you know, see what the mood see what the mood was like on the on Ivy League campuses. Though I think Princeton is a much saner place than Harvard has been my uh, my judgment over the 30 or so years that I've known something about both campuses. Uh, I mean, Harvard is in Cambridge, where, which is considerably. Uh, Crazier, I would say, than than Princeton than Princeton is. To give you a sense of Cambridge, um, some of you met much, of you, many of you know much about it. But um, I first went there actually in the set, early 70s. I was a uh, uh, um, 
conservative Democrat at that point, supporting Scoop Jackson for the presidency in the Democratic uh, primary in 1972. And I remember at Harvard, I, um, uh, the Massachusetts primary was second then, I think, after New Hampshire. And McGovern had upset Muskie in New Hampshire, and so it was a wide-open race. And people really thought Scoop Jackson, who was a great you know, Cold War liberal from the state of Washington, had a chance. And I worked hard for Scoop. I kind of cut classes and, uh, you know, uh, handed out leaflets for him. And as I said, it was the beginning of my very successful political career. Scoop, <laughs> Scoop ran seventh in the Massachusetts <laughs> primary. Uh, he ran just behind Wilbur Mills, actually. <laughs> it's, it's actually literally true. Um, I ended up back at Harvard uh, teaching for a couple of years at the Kennedy School of Government, sort of the poorer version of the Woodrow Wilson School, I guess, um, at Harvard for two years. I was the token conservative on the faculty at the Kennedy School. They like to have one on the faculty at all times. Uh, it's useful for the students to know what one looks like for when they graduate. You know, I guess, and, uh, um, the... Uh, but to give you a sense of politics in Cambridge, I, I, we lived just outside Cambridge in Belmont, Massachusetts, on, uh, which, and it was the 8th Congressional District of Massachusetts, uh, Tip O'Neill's Congressional District. He was Speaker of the House, a revered figure up in the Boston area, totally Democratic Congressional District. It had been John Kennedy's Congressional District, actually, 30 years before. And I remember voting in November 84, and I voted for um, Ronald Reagan for re-election to the presidency, and I voted for the Republican Senate candidate, I remember, against John Kerry. And as a loyal Reagan supporter and loyal Republican, I voted uh, for the opponent to Tip O'Neill, even though I knew it was, it was hopeless. And I remember the next morning, uh, my, my wife Susan had the Boston Globe open to the election uh, tables, and, uh, uh, returns, and I remember asking her, just out of curiosity, how many votes did the Republican running against Tip O'Neill get? And Susan looked at the Globe and sort of looked again and said, I hate to tell you this, but there was no Republican running against Tip O'Neill. <laughs> and I said, you know, I know I voted for someone against, <laughs> against Tip. It, it, it turned out I had voted for the communists. <laughs> the, um, this is actually a, a true fact. I'll just tell one more story before we get into it. <laughs> We're getting into my very serious talk here. Um, the, uh, it's a follow-up on this. I, I, I guess 10, 12 years, 12 years later, 1996, it all came back to me because I, I had agreed to debate um, at the Jewish Theological Seminary on the Upper West Side of New York, just a couple of miles from where I grew up. I, in October of 96, I had foolishly agreed to, uh, as I do every four years, try to make the case to some of my co-religionists uh, that they should vote, consider voting Republican, which is always a hopeless case. <laughs> and um, so I'd agreed to debate a man named Leonard Fine, who's a pretty well-known uh, liberal Jewish journalist, uh, on sort of you know, Republican versus Democrat. I guess it was Clinton versus Dole at that time. Um, it was a pretty hopeless uh, task. I, there were 400 people there at the JTS. I remember we walked out, uh, Leonard and I walked out on the stage with this very nice woman who was moderating, and she told me, don't worry, only about 380 of them are on Leonard's side. <laughs> At least 20 of them are undecided. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I lost most of those 20, believe me, you know. I, <laughs> once, once by the time the evening was over. But I remember saying, you know, thinking this is kind of a tough crowd. And, and so I said I'd grown up near here as a conservative, and I wasn't too popular. And I told the story about being at Harvard and being for Scoop Jackson. And, and then I told the story about living in 
uh, outside Cambridge and, and, and voting, trying to vote for, for a Republican against Tip O'Neill, but inadvertently voting for the communist. And I told the story, and there was dead silence in the audience. <laughs> no one laughed. <laughs> no one even chuckled. Um, I pathetically continued on with the debate. Uh, at the end of the evening, two people came up to the stage to talk to me. One was a very nice uh, middle-aged woman who said she didn't really understand the point of the story um, <laughs> about Tip O'Neill and the communists. <laughs> you, know, you know, she said, that's a tough choice. <laughs> the, um, the, uh, then the other person who came up was a very nice-looking young man who said he really thought it was funny that he, that I, he was there uh, this night and I was here because he was the communist I had voted for. <laughs> which, I've, which I've always thought was a perfect West Side of New York story. You know, that's a, uh, an amazing fact. Um, well, speaking of the Jewish Theological Seminary, I guess I'm supposed to talk about uh, under God, question mark. This is the topic uh, Professor George gave me. Is religion at the heart of America's culture war? I needless to say won't answer this question because uh, you're never supposed to really answer these questions uh, in these kinds of talks. But I, I have a few, uh, let me just give you, I mean, really a few thoughts and leave plenty of time for comment and, and question. And I also say it's very nice to have a break from discussing the forthcoming war over Iraq, but I feel some obligation maybe to take questions on it if you want, I, I, since I um, seem to start it. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, really. <laughs> Larry Kaplan and I wrote a little book, which you can get, and that summarizes my views on it, called The War Over Iraq. But if you feel don't want to spend the money for the book and just want to ask a question, feel, feel, uh, feel, feel free. Anyway, it's a nice break, actually, to talk about something a little uh, more serious, and I, I'm not sure I have any great conclusions, but let me, I, I will give you my, my thoughts about this topic. I mean, it strikes me that uh, the topic is under God, question mark, which I think is a useful way of thinking about America, because there is something interesting. America seems to be both a nation that is and isn't uh, a nation that seeks to conduct its politics, so to speak, under God. I mean, there's clearly a tension in America between a kind of uh, secular, this-worldly emphasis, certainly the Lockean uh, political philosophy that underlies the Declaration of Independence, uh, natural rights, uh, but also a religious tradition, which you also see in the Declaration of Independence, um, America seems perhaps unique, I think, among many modern nations at least, and being founded in a way that embodies a tension between this worldly and sort of otherworldly concerns, or, or let's say between uh, seeking to live a life of human happiness and, and, a, and a life of, that's under God, um, and uh, embodying that tension and not really resolving it, not really coming, coming down uh, one side or the other. I won't go into any great detail here on the Declaration of Independence, but it's just obvious if you read through that document, that tension is pretty carefully preserved. You know, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary to uh, sever the bonds, et cetera, is how it begins. And it's a very, let's say, secular beginning, right? Human events, I think that's intended to sort of make clear this is a, it becomes necessary to do this. The original appeal in the Declaration is very much in the spirit of modern political philosophy, Machiavelli on, you know, you, you guide yourself by what is humanly necessary, and you guide yourself by the pursuit of happiness, uh, liberty, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness here in this world. 
On the other hand, there's also this creator who gives us these rights, who endows us with these rights, and especially at the end of the Declaration, there's an explicit appeal to the supreme judge of the world and indeed to divine providence. Um, So there's a kind of uh, twofold character, I think, to the Declaration. We hold these truths to be self-evident. It doesn't say, you know, we have been granted these truths by divine revelation. On the other hand, the rights are endowed by the creator. So under God, the question mark is, in a sense, I think, the, a good way to capture the ambivalence, let's say, of America, of the American relation to religion. Um, Tocqueville discusses this at uh, great length. If you look at the chapter on self-interest, self-interest well understood, probably the most famous doctrine that Tocqueville identifies or maybe invents and ascribes to America, um, it's a this-worldly docu- doctrine. Right, that we pursue in America, we're entitled to pursue our interest, and Tocqueville praises Americans for pursuing their self-interest in an enlightened way, self-interest well understood, as opposed to narrow or vulgar or short-term self-interest. But at the very end of that chapter in Democracy in America, I think it's chapter 18 of part two of volume two, um, the central chapter of the second volume of Democracy in America, Tocqueville says, but you know, if you really think about enlightened self-interest, you can be led to think about the other world and about your soul, and ultimately Americans can return to religion uh, by this roundabout path, he says, which is, again, an interesting way in which Tocqueville sees in America, uh, based on what is fundamentally, I think, a modern and this-worldly attitude towards life and openness, let's say, to under God with a question mark. And I think that tension has obviously been maintained in American life um, ever since. Another way of putting it in a very simple-minded way, but maybe useful, is to say this, that you know, if one extreme is claiming that to be embodying God's will or acting according to God's will, America has certainly never, uh, has always resisted that. I think that would not be you know, that kind of um, religious fanaticism and claim to know that God has uh, endowed a certain people with the right to rule in other people or a certain people with the right to kill other people, as we've certainly see still in this modern, maybe see even more in this modern world. That's, of course, contrary to the American founding and to the American ethos. Uh, On the other hand, the notion that you want to have a politics or could have a politics or could have a decent society totally separate from God is something that Americans have always been skeptical of. And certainly in the 20th century, you could argue with uh, communism, fascism, the attempt to base politics on either history in the case of communism or the will of the people, uh, if that's the right way to say it, uh, for fascism, um, that, that seems to suggest the problem with not bowing to any standard above uh, one's own will or one's own interpretation of what history requires and allows. Uh, F- Franklin Roosevelt, interestingly, in uh, 1942, in his State of the Union speech, said that victory over Hitler's Germany means victory for religion. Uh, The Nazis, he said, could not tolerate uh, uh, religious freedom. The world is too small to provide adequate living room for both Hitler and God, which is a very actually interesting and sort of deep, I would say, uh, inside of FDR is that if you are going to have a Nazi or really a fascist regime of that sort, you can't have an independent entity to whom people can appeal and by which one could judge the actions of one's this-worldly rulers. Um, on the other hand, so, so on the, on the other, you know, we provide adequate, you might say, living room for both our secular leaders and for 
God here in America, or we try to. The balance is obviously not so easy always to, always to keep. Um, part of keeping that balance, and I'll now get into contemporary things, uh, I think was explained pretty well by Jim Caesar, who teaches at the University of Virginia, has an article in the most recent, last week's, I guess, Weekly Standard, uh, discussing providence as a way of trying to balance a kind of respect for the divine uh, with a kind of assumption of human responsibility. And Caesar makes the point, I think, quite interestingly and eloquently, that at the highest points of the American political tradition, especially with Lincoln, you get a, both an appeal to divine providence, but also a reminder that we don't really understand or know the ways of divine providence, so that <laughs> providence both is kind of a check on human pride and a, a kind of guidance towards justice on the one hand, but also it doesn't guarantee you victory, and indeed you always have to question yourself as to whether you are in fact uh, doing what you, what you should be doing. Um, as God gives us to see the right, as Lincoln said in the second inaugural. And Lincoln's second inaugural really is worth looking at in this context because it's explicitly designed, I think, against a mid-19th century doctrine of history, which, I mean, not just which Marx had developed, though in the American form it was more of just a progressive doctrine of history, uh, which was a kind of great confidence that we know which way history is going and we are entitled to sort of uh, um, assume that... that, that uh, what did George Bancroft, the American historian, say? Everything is in motion for the better. The last political state of the world, likewise, is ever more excellent than the old. Sort of amazingly Marxist-like, I would say, uh, understanding or deterministic understanding of progress, which would give one great excessive confidence, perhaps, that if one were on the right side of history, one had the right to run roughshod over everyone else. Lincoln clearly wants to resist that. He resists in the second inaugural any northern triumphalism. He puts the blame for slavery on both north and south. He says that if, you know, if we have to shed all this blood, we can't really say it's an unjust judgment of God. On the other hand, he, interestingly, he's criticized after the second inaugural in the north for not saying that God's on the side of the north and for seeming somewhat even-handed in saying that one can't really know God's purposes. Um, Lincoln, in one of his last letters, explained that the wish to invoke God as being on your side in politics was contrary to the idea of providence and unsuited to the education of the American people uh, or of any great people. <laughs> I would argue that President Bush, and okay, let me now transition to, 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 to current uh, affairs, without comparing George W. Bush to Lincoln, um, what strikes me, and this gets to the question that was posed, I mean, sort of is, to what extent is, the question of religion at the heart of America's cultural wars, or let's just say America's political wars. One of the really striking developments to me in the last two or three months has been the extent to which there's been a major assault on President Bush for allegedly misusing, misappropriating religious rhetoric. Um, I, I, and I will now mostly defend the President, partly by saying that I don't think it's really true that he's used it that much, but also I think it... The, the incredible sensitivity on the part of liberal elites to what I regard in the case of Bush as a rather mild use of pretty generic and non-sectarian religious rhetoric and religious appeals does suggest to me that maybe the question of religion, the question of God, is at the center or at least close to the center of a lot of our political and cultural fights. Um, what kinds of things does the president say? 
He said in the State of the Union, the liberty we prize is not America's gift to the world, it is God's gift to humanity. Um, for this, actually, already several people, uh, columnists and all, started talking about how this was a messianic view that the president had of America's uh, role in the world. Um, in the State of the Union, he also said, we do not know, we do not claim to know all the ways of providence, yet we can trust in them, placing our confidence in the loving God behind all of life and all of history. This is very much in the traditional link. We can't know all the ways of providence, but we can trust in them. Somehow things will one hopes, one trusts, uh, which is different from one knows, uh, come out okay in the end. People need to have some confidence in that, uh, I think, and in any case, uh, the president does. And, and, but it, it doesn't mean that we don't have a duty to seek to do the right as, as we see it. Um, so providence for Bush, as for Lincoln, seems to be a way to avoid, on the one hand, a kind of historical determinism, yeah, everything's great. We don't have to worry about assuming duties ourselves. We don't have to be serious about making moral choices ourselves. It avoids that trap. But on the other hand, it also avoids a kind of a sense that there's no guidance at all and that you know, justice has no support and that everything's just up in the air and uh, that we can have no confidence that at the end of the day things will, will be uh, okay. Uh, Bush, I think, has been pretty careful, actually, in his use of providence um, and very much in the tradition of, of, of Lincoln. Um, and I think, in general, his rhetoric has been pretty careful. But you sure wouldn't know it from reading some of the criticisms. Let me just read a couple, because I think they are, they are so striking. Um, let's see. We have Barry Lynn of Americans United for Separation of Church and State. The tone set by Bush is, I am a Christian. I'm going to tell you about it on a regular basis. It eventually gets very exclusionary. Uh, Progressive magazine denounced Bush's messianic militarism. Um, one British, of course, in Europe, they particularly find this appalling. Um, uh, one European commentator, a mainstream BBC commentator, said that for Bush is a, uh, Bush's uh, doctrine, Bush believes he's on a crusade, and it's a fundamentalist religious doctrine. It's terrifying to those of us uh, in Britain. Um, I'll just give one or two more instances. You don't, you don't uh, need that many. Um, Martin Marty in Newsweek, very distinguished professor of religion, in Newsweek just a couple of weeks ago, the problem isn't with Bush's sincerity, but with his evident conviction that he's doing God's will. Now, in fact, Bush has been pretty careful never to claim to be that he knows that he's doing God's will or that he knows what God's will is, but just his belief that there is conceivably a God's will, a divine will, and that we should seek to try to do our best to embody it or reflect it or, or lured it uh, is enough to drive an awful lot of people in America, uh, I won't say drive them crazy, but to make them very unhappy. Uh, well, two last instances. Um, Jane Eisner here in the Philadelphia Inquirer, locally, sort of locally, uh, very troubled. She said a couple of weeks ago, I'm troubled by the sectarian nature of Bush's public professions of zeal. He has forgotten that he's talking to mixed company. My, my sense actually is that Bush goes out of his way, given that he's quite a devout. Christian, that not to actually be sectarian or, or uh, in most of his references to God, which are very generic. Um, but, but Jane Eisner complains, Bush has said in recent weeks that all events have a purpose and a divine plan. He's praised the wonder-working power of American goodness. This phrase apparently is offensive because he took it from a Protestant hymn. Um, and Bush told the families of the Columbia astronauts, according to Jane Eisner, that they'd all soon be reunited in heaven. 
That's a particularly interesting mistake because, in fact, if you look at Bush's speech, which is a very, very eloquent speech, I would say, on the afternoon that the, uh, the shuttle blew up, Bush was, this was a carefully written speech by Bush's uh, uh, speechwriters, on which Bush worked a lot himself, I'm told. And if you look at the speech, he says, um, at the end, it's rather moving, the sorrow is lonely, but you are not alone. Um, this is the Tuesday when he's speaking to the uh, families. Um, in time, you will find comfort and the grace to see you through, and in God's own time, we can pray that the day of your reunion will come. I mean, he's very careful, and he says this on the Saturday speech, too, that we can pray that your reunion will come. So he's very cautious about asserting that he knows who's going to heaven or what, what happens after death. He says appropriately, I think, that from his point of view, uh, we can pray that, that all will be well. But this is always uh, uh, simplified uh, by critics to, who make it seem as if he, as Jane Eisner says, that he told the families that they'd all soon be reunited in heaven. What he was careful to say on that Saturday and then on Tuesday that we pray or we hope uh, that, they will be, that they will be reunited. One final quote from the Toronto National Post. Uh, Bush always declares that America has God on its side, and that smacks of the type of religiosity and fundamentalism that is the root of the terrorist conflict in the first place. So you do get some of that, that Bush is like Osama, and I suppose he's going to go around doing things like, like Osama, according to, this, according to this argument. So I'm struck by the ferocity, almost, of the reaction to Bush's the fact that he's a religious man, his fairly mild, I would say, invocations of religious faith in public ceremonial occasions, his fairly modest proposals to steer a little bit of federal funding to uh, faith-based charities as opposed to, or to at least make faith-based charities eligible for them as opposed to uh, uh, simply restricting, it, restricting that, those funds uh, to secular uh, charities um, and uh, other such... Uh, other such things. Bush said at a prayer breakfast, we believe, as Franklin Roosevelt said, that men and women born to freedom in the image of God will not forever suffer the oppressor's sword. We can also be confident in the ways of providence even when they are far from our understanding, which I think, again, is a very nice way, a very appropriate way of expressing the confidence that a religious believer has without seeming presumptuously to know exactly how it's going to work. As he says, we can't, uh, it's far from our understanding. Uh, but we still have to be confident that people, nations, individuals, will not forever suffer. And guess Bush gets no credit for any subtlety or care in this, in this uh, instance, and I, that may just be contempt for Bush among the educated classes and among a lot of uh, op-ed writers, and I suppose one shouldn't make too much of it, but it does strike me that the, the virulence of it with respect to religion, to his religion, is particularly revealing. And it does suggest, therefore, that there is his religious beliefs have struck a nerve among liberals who aren't crazy about Bush anyway, uh, and that maybe there is something to the notion, therefore, that the question of religion, the status of religion, the public status of religion, is central or is implicated in a lot of our big political fights. I mean, if we're going to have this big war, you would think that more of the debate would actually be about the merits of the war and less of the debate would be about um, less of the debate would be premised on the notion that Bush is going to war because he has some messianic mission 
or because he, and this is truly crazy, I think, because he believes as a fundamentalist Christian that if there's a huge apocalypse in the Middle East, that will hasten the end of days and, and therefore, I suppose, enable more Jews to be converted to Christianity. I mean, this is something so far from anything Bush has ever said or I would think ever thought. Uh, it's something so far from what mainstream evangelical Protestants of the kind Bush is um, and the kind whom Bush hangs out with and the kind of church Bush worships at. Uh, it's so far from that that you have to really have a kind of crazy view of what an awful lot of Protestants think. And you have to misunderstand what, you know, 3% of Protestants think. You have to understand that as being what 50% of evangelical Protestants think. And that itself, that misunderstanding itself, is very revealing. I mean, we've seen this flip side on the right. It's like a bunch of people in the early 50s who thought that anyone who was a socialist, a democratic socialist, who thought that maybe income should be redistributed more equally, who thought there was something to be said for criticisms of capitalism, they're all, you know, it's sort of like assuming that all those people are basically either communists or, or uh, if not communists, sort of communist stooges or pinkos. I mean, it is an equivalent, in my view, oversimplification, and not just oversimplification, but injustice. But the fact that people make that oversimplification is, I think, revealing. I'll leave aside the question of Bush and, uh, and his religious views and the extent to which liberal, uh, secular liberal elites just seem unable to credit them or to understand them even. Um, and let's talk for a minute about real politics, because there too one can make the case that religion is at the heart of our, increasingly at the heart of our, of our political divides and disputes. And maybe the easiest way to say this is what seems to me to have been preserved in a kind of healthy tension in the American tradition, a respect for religion, a respect for, for, for the divine, and a sort of healthy doubt also about too much deference to anyone's claim to know what the divine is, uh, that that tension which you see in Declaration, you see in, in Lincoln, and I'd say you can see in FDR, and I think you can still see today, uh, is under increasing pressure, I would say. And the easiest way to see this is just in looking at the two political parties. What are the big stories of the last uh, 20, 30 years? And this is something political scientists and historians I think we'll talk about now for quite a while, is we have moved from two parties whose primary division was really on economics. Republicans, party of the wealthy, laissez-faire, limited government, Democrats, party of, you know, after FDR, party of the New Deal, use government to help the uh, less privileged, uh, more skeptical about capitalism, corporations, and all that. That was the fundamental split, the New Deal model of American politics. And indeed, Americans did tend to vote by class or economic lines, never as much as in some other countries, obviously, but the wealthier you were, you were, the more likely you were to vote Republican and vice versa. There were peculiarities, regional peculiarities, certain ethnic groups were further along one way or the other, but basically that was the core split in the American political system that, let's say, that I grew up in, uh, the, the New Deal, Great Society political system. Um, that is no longer the case. Beginning in 1972, cultural, social, and religious divides uh, began, and this is just an empirical analytical statement, not a normative one, began to become more salient, more important in explaining people's voting behavior than economic divides. 72 is a huge moment here. In 1972, George McGovern, a liberal Democrat who was for a tax increase and, and all kinds of big government liberal programs, carries Scarsdale, New York. You know. Richard Nixon 
a pretty moderately conservative Republican who spends a lot of time bashing, you know, liberal big government programs, carries an awful lot of working class neighborhoods in Queens. And what that means is that obviously the economic uh, uh, push for voting is diminishing in importance compared to other things. Now, in 72, it's complicated because you have the war, the war in Vietnam, so you could say the war trumps everything. But it turns out that this trend continues through the rest of the 70s, through the 80s, through the 90s, with some zigs and zags. But by 2000, we have the following phenomenon. Al Gore runs a populist campaign, the people versus the powerful, probably more populist, class warfare sort of rhetoric then I'd say that any, any Democrat, I don't know what, in 20 years maybe since Mondale, certainly different from what Clinton sounded like. Bush runs a pretty conservative campaign, Social Security privatization, tax cuts. Certainly you could semi-legitimately even you know, tag the Bush-Cheney Republicans as corporate you know, apologists and people who are going to watch out for their corporate friends first and not for, uh, and for the wealthy and certainly not for the poor and the working class. The economic divide in 2000 is the smallest it's been in the history of modern elections since 1932. Uh, Bush carries families with more than, uh, whose income is over $100,000, 55 to 45. The election as a whole is dead even. Obviously, Gore gets half a million more votes, but let's just say the election is 50-50. Um, Bush carries the wealthy, 55-45. Gore carries, if you go down to below 50,000, also by about the same, 55-45. It's an amazingly small gap in terms of income, amazingly small skew. You know, income only gives you an extra five points, so to speak, for Bush or for Gore uh, compared to the norm. If you compare that with, let's say, 1964 when Johnson ran against Goldwater, Johnson won 60-40, but Goldwater ran typically 20 points ahead of his 40 among the wealthy, and Johnson conversely ran uh, 20 points ahead even of his 60 among the working class uh, and the and poorer Americans. So that huge gap shrinks. Conversely, a gap that didn't exist in the 50s and 60s opens up from 72 on. And that gap is a kind of cultural, social, religious gap. But let's, and there are many, many, many aspects to this, but let's just take religion, since that's our topic, and the best proxy, presumably, for religion, for religious observance or religious belief one proxy at least, is church going, church attendance, regularity of church attendance. And in the, in the 2000 election, if you went to church or synagogue or mosque every week, basically, or said you did, you were a regular attender, you basically were uh, twice as likely to vote for Bush as for Gore. If you were a secular American, which is to say you really didn't go to any religious service on a regular basis, maybe you went to a wedding or something, but you didn't really attend or, uh, you know, weren't a member of a church and didn't really attend regularly, you were, for, you were likely to vote for Gore by about three to two. Um, and it correlates within denominations, among Jews, for example. The more secular you were, income did not predict votes. Rich Jews barely, I don't even think, did vote any more for Bush than for Gore compared to poor Jews, I mean, obviously Jews were four to one for Gore, period, but the one, the one way Bush, you could find Bush votes among Jews was to find more observant, more orthodox especially, uh, more religiously affiliated Jews. The most pro-Gore vote in America was secular Jews, secular Jewish women, actually, 
Secular Jewish women who had gone to grad school, I believe. <laughs> Literally was the most, you know, it was like 97 to 3 or something. It's a big problem for all my Jewish male friends who would like to, who are Republicans and would like to meet a wife, you know. So they, they just have to marry a liberal and convert her. That was my, uh, that was my, my solution. Um, it's really, but, and if you, you can look at this, another way of looking at it is this. What is one of the great splits in American history before the New Deal and, and into the modern era, too, politically, electorally? Different religious denominations, and especially Catholics and Protestants. Obviously, Catholics and Protestants have had lots of issues over the years and in America as well. Typically, and this differed by state by state and region by region and over time, but typically, if Protestants dominated one of the political parties, often the Republican Party, let's say, in the early 20th century, uh, Catholics would kind of go into the other party, and so you would find a big skew between Protestant voting and Catholic voting. Um, that's not the case anymore. Protestants and Catholics, I mean, it's all mixed up. Uh, they're much less distinct in their voting habits. But church-attending at- church Catholics or self-described devout Catholics or self-described uh, religious Catholics resemble self-described religious Protestants or church-attending Protestants more than either does their non-observant brethren. In other words, if you just look at the numbers, you know, it, it is a better predictor to know whether the person is going to church every week than to know what church he's going to. And that's really a stunning development. I mean, I don't think that has ever been the case in American politics. We have had ethnic and religious divisions, like most countries have had, we have had economic divisions, which in the 20th century tended to start trumping those old religious divisions, which most people thought was kind of a good thing, because basically it's probably healthier for, it's easier to compromise economic fights than, you know, fights between ethnic groups or religious groups. And so there was a sense that that was progress when, you know, we started to have fights about tax cuts as opposed to having Protestants and Catholics and pitch battles the way we did tend to have in the late 19th century and early 20th century in lots of parts of the country. But now we've moved to another stage, or we're moving to another stage, which I think is, well, it is what it is. I mean, it's a fact. It, it, one could be legitimately be worried about it, though, which is do you really want to have a politics where you have a secular party and, in a sense, a religious party? Now, that's a big exaggeration because the truth is lots of Americans are in between and lots of Americans are, you know, slightly secular or slightly religious and they tend to go between both parties. And even if I tell you that, as it is true, that by two to one, churchgoers vote Republican, that's still two to one, still not ten to one. I mean, there's still an awful lot of people who are regular churchgoers and seriously religious who are Democrats, and there are an awful lot of secular Republicans. So I don't want to exaggerate this, but it really is, and I say this as someone who once was a political scientist, it is a stunning fact that we have moved from a sort of economic basis of politics to a, a religiosity basis for politics, and that the kind of religiosity we now have uh, is... As I say, it's not Protestant versus Catholic so much as it's sort of serious about religion or uh, serious isn't quite right, but uh, um, affiliated with and active in religion as opposed to uh, secular. There are exceptions. There are very activist, for example, liberal Protestant groups uh, whose membership and leadership especially are very energetically affiliated but also very liberal. Those groups, however, tend to be small and shrinking. And all the growth is coming in groups where the 
affiliation also leads them in a more or less conservative or Republican direction. And the other growth is coming among secular Americans who are disaffiliated increasingly with religious or uh, institutions or, or uh, uh, churches, and, um, and, and they're increasingly drifting in the opposite direction. Again, I, this, I won't deploy this or not. It, it, in a way, it doesn't make that much difference. I think it's just a, it's an interesting factual matter. One odd side effect of this, which has been underappreciated in my view, is in the South especially. I mean, if you look at the history of, South, of the South in America politically, leaving aside race for a minute, one of the most well, leaving aside race, one of the probably the bitterest division after race was between Catholics and Protestants. I mean, what is fundamentalist Protestantism about? Except, not except, that's unfair, but a large part of what it's, a large part of what it was about was, um, you know, dislike and suspicion for, of and suspicion of uh, the Roman Catholic Church. And of course we saw a, a, a fantastic kind of um, odd relic of that in Bob Jones University when, the, when Bush visited that as a candidate in South Carolina in February of 2000. And everyone said this is going to kill Bush with Catholics, you know, because this is he's visiting a university whose website, whose, whose brochures are full of, you know, kind of stuff from the 1920s about the Pope and his uh, nefarious ways. It didn't actually hurt Bush at all, ultimately, with church-going Catholics, because they don't believe for a minute that most evangelical Protestants are sitting around, you know, spending a lot of time uh, uh, conspiring to deprive Catholics of their civil rights. And indeed, to the degree that they think about it, they think of Catholics... Uh, church-going Catholics as their allies in various political fights, obviously, especially the pro-life cause, uh, but more generally, they're kind of cultural allies against a secular Hollywood-type America that they don't like. Um, ironically, therefore, the kind of common ground that the religious have found has now totally overcome and obscured, I think, what was one of the great rifts in American life between fundamentalist Protestantism and Roman Catholicism, which is really not an issue anymore. So I don't know if they deserve, if you know, Jerry Falwell and people deserve credit for this exactly, but um, it is an interesting fact in any case that, I mean, again, it shows, it shows how much things have changed uh, in the last um, three, four, five, six decades. The original way, of course, that all political scientists expected this rift of, let's say, Protestant Catholic to be overcome was through economic progress and getting people to focus on their economic interests, not on these old-fashioned religious beliefs. And we went through that stage. What no one expected, what most secular social scientists didn't expect, is that the economic stage would then give, uh, give way to yet another stage where religion comes back. But it comes back not as in a sort of sectarian way, but in a broader kind of religious versus secular way. I don't want to overstate this. If you really look hard at the data, it, most Americans, of course, are in between, as is always the case. And so you can, you can be a little misled if you take the, let's say, really, it's about six, maybe, if you take the, I don't know, 20% or so of Americans who are really, really um, uh, secular. Uh, they really don't like religious, uh, any kind of, you know, uh, the people who are really serious about religion. They tend to think that anyone who's serious about religion is some kind of fundamentalist, wacko, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that's not a huge chunk of America. That's probably 15 to 20% of America. Similarly, on the other side, if you take you know, really devout Americans who, in a sense, have a deep distrust of the secular, that's a fairly small chunk of America, and the bulk is, of course, in between. So, in fact, in real elections, the question is where the in-between people go, and that's why we have competitive elections and why uh, you know, the 
candidates try hard if they're on the conservative and religious side not to appear to be too uh, aggressive in pushing those views and why if you're on the secular side, you, if you're Al Gore, you take Joe Lieberman, for example, as your, as your vice presidential candidate. A very smart move, incidentally, by Al Gore. But it didn't actually, wasn't quite enough. And again, I'll just one last electoral point. I mean, if you had predicted to a normal political scientist in the days when I studied political science in grad school, that in the 2000 election, Gore running a populist economic campaign against a Bush-Cheney ticket, Bush, son of a president, inherited wealth, Cheney, head of Halliburton oil companies, and that Bush would carry the wealthiest states in the nation, California and New York, and carry the wealthiest parts of the wealthiest states even more overwhelmingly. Gore, you mean. I'm sorry, Gore, right. Sorry, thank you. And Bush, <laughs> Bush would carry, what, 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 what elected Bush? West Virginia and Arkansas, right? Some of the poorest states in the nation, uh, which he won entirely on a cultural, I believe, appeal, since I don't think there were really huge numbers of people in West Virginia yearning for a cut in their capital gains tax rates. <laughs> it's a very, not to, you know, not that there aren't some wealthy people in West Virginia, but um, that's a pretty stunning fact, and it's worth thinking about. And I mean, it's not worth, I don't know if it's worth worrying about or not, but it's just a new moment and a moment worth considering. If you put this together, then, to conclude, if you put together what I would take to be the kind of, the extent to which in, in this run-up to the war, there's been this focus on Bush's religion, if you put that together with the electoral situation, then, this is my sort of final point, if you kind of think about what issues are likely to be very big issues in the next few years in American politics, uh, if you think that this war is going to be ongoing and, is go and that one's reaction to the war turns out in large part to have to do with one's reaction to what America stands for and whether we should have kind of a moral mission in the world and whether that breaks down on religious secular grounds. And it may not continue to do so, but it has to a surprising degree over the last uh, year. Maybe it's an accident that Bush happens to be president. If we had a, you know, if Dick Cheney or Don Rumsfeld were the presidents, and these who don't seem to be particularly church-attending types, um, you know, that we wouldn't, the, the war debate wouldn't be becoming a religion debate as well. But of course, that in a way makes my point, doesn't it? Because I, what I always say when people say, well, this is Bush, he's crazy, kind of Christian, messianic view, he wants to, you know, he has this crazy view at the Middle East. And I say, so, I mean, Cheney, Rumsfeld, the great hawks in this administration, so far as one can tell, they're entirely secular Americans, basically. And they don't seem to, well, how come they're so hawkish? But it doesn't seem to matter, you know? People really want to ascribe this, the, the pro-war party, so to speak, to sort of a religious view. And conversely, I would say, uh, religious Americans or the pro-war party is happy to attack the, the left and the anti-war types as sort of, you know, secular hedonists who don't understand that morality is important, you know, almost as bad as the French or something like that. Um, it's kind of a low blow, I guess. The, uh, incidentally, I will just parenthetically say, if you read my colleague Bob Kagan's book, happy, which I'm happy to say is now a bestseller, on Europe and America, the one thing he doesn't really get into, but I think you really need to look at to explain the cultural gulf between Europe and America, the worldview, um, which we now have seen, I think, in the last year, really come to the fore, the difference in worldview between America and Europe. One thing you'd have to factor into that is that about a third of Americans uh, go to church or other religious institutions every week, uh, about 5 to 10 percent of most Europe of Europeans in most countries are regular church attenders. Now, any sociologist who came down and looked at two countries or two continents and said this one is a third church attending and this one's 5% church attending is going to predict that they're going to have sort of different views probably about the world. 
And if you add that to a bunch of other differences between America and Europe, you do end up with this growing uh, cultural gap, as it were, between America and Europe, which in some ways I think mimics the growing cultural gap within America between, let's call it, a more European kind of America um, and a more, I don't know what you're saying, Southern American uh, uh, type, Christian America type of, of America. Um, in any case, if you look at the issues that are going to come up in the next decades, next couple of decades, they seem to me to be likely to accentuate these gaps and these fights, whether it's the war, whether it's the bioethics issues that Robbie George has worked on a lot, you know, these are issues, issues at the beginning of life, end of life, cloning, uh, uh, playing God, you know, genetic engineering. It's hard to believe those issues aren't going to become more important over the next uh, several years, maybe in the next several months even. And those tend to break down very sharply on these lines. So if you see, if one accepts that there's been this trend in this direction in which the two political parties have increasingly divided on the issue of whether we are one nation under God or not, and, where, and, and if you accept that these two parties are, that there's something risky about that, that there was something healthy about the tension of under God with a question mark, and that you don't really want to have a politics, this is really why we've always thought ourselves spared from a lot of the grief of Europe. Let's say, you know, you don't really want one party that is the party of God and the other party that is the party of the secular party, because those differences are pretty hard to bridge. Um, I think you could make a case, however, that these differences are likely to become sharpened and, uh, and more, and that our politics is likely to be more divided along these lines uh, in the next few years uh, and decades. Why don't I stop there? And we have time for Terrific, good. Well, we have a custom in the Madison program of uh, giving uh, the first several minutes of question time over to our students, undergraduate and graduate. So let me ask if any students would like to uh, raise a question for Dr. Crystal. If not, we will throw, mm -hmm. the, throw the floor open generally. Uh, yeah, uh, you sir, right down here. Uh, Doctor, you had a great line yesterday about the UN going from useless to harmful. Where do you see the future of the United Nations? <laughs> on the God question. Yeah. <laughs> Well, they're actually, uh, they're not sound on the God question, but the, um, actually, this is a case, though, where the, uh, this is like, on the God question, you know, one of the big fights now within Europe is if there's going to be a European constitution, whether it is going to recognize in its preamble yeah. that any God or not, you know, the way, the way some constitute, what the German constitution, the constitution the French does, for example, right now. Anyway, so the, the, that's a side issue. Um, I don't know what's going to happen with the UN. I mean, I think this is, I'll just give you a quick answer on this. 9-11, I would say, was a very big deal. And what it means for an event to be a big deal, to launch a new political era, is that it has all kinds of consequences that we didn't expect it to have at first. Uh, all kinds of implications follow. That, and it, it shakes things up more than we think. And this is one case where I would argue that 9-11 you know, happened. We retaliated against al-Qaeda. The president decided, and I agree with this, that he had to also get serious about dictators of weapons of mass destruction who have a connection with terrorist groups. Thus, we're on the verge of a war with Iraq. We have a fundamental difference with some of our uh, heretofore allies about this. Um, but one implication of this is that the U.S.-Europe relationship is in question in a way no one would have expected 18 months ago. And the U.S.-UN relationship is in question in a way no one would have expected 18 months ago. And I'd say it's, it's, it's in question two ways. The UN is making claims, Kofi Annan is making claims that no one thought 
really he would make 18 months ago, that it is illegitimate for a nation to go to war without Security Council authorization, even though we had a, you know, perfectly, what everyone seemed to think was a just war and against Milosevic in 99 without Security Council authorization. So on the one hand, the, the claims of, let's say, the UN backers are more extreme than they were 18 months ago. And conversely, people like me, are, who used to think the UN was kind of harmless and, you know, did some good things on the margins, but basically you could have tolerated it and accommodated it and didn't make much difference, I now really do think that the UN can actually be dangerous and damaging to U.S. foreign policy. So I think when you get these two points of view, uh, things are much more up in the air in terms of the future than seemed to be the case just two or three years ago. And I think you could see that in all kinds of areas. And if you add that onto this kind of, in other words, a sort of a uh, increase, you're going to put a lot of traditional institutions at home and abroad under tension in a way that people wouldn't have expected, I think, two or three years ago. Now, students aren't excluded from asking <laughs> questions at this point. Does, does anybody have a God question? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. Uh, Professor uh, Denis? Um, yeah, I, I actually want to connect concerns with Iraq with, with, your with God. Um, and in particular, uh, you characterized the division as one between, uh, division over Iraq as one between, broadly speaking, religiously active people versus sort of secular uh, folks. But it seems to me that it's complicated. Uh, the activity among the churches and in the Catholic Church, uh, uh, which one would not, uh, I don't think one would exclude the Pope as an active uh, uh, member of, of the church. And so I, I just wonder whether. leave that to Raleigh. One sees a kind of uh, movement uh, in, in the protest against Iraq, uh, kind of, uh, at least for a, a kind of echo of 1960s activism where you have churches and secular groups coming together. I wonder whether this complicates this, and one might see a follow up on this in. Yeah, well, it does complicate it, and I, I thought of this and I should have mentioned it and didn't, and uh, just uh, it's stri there's a striking mobilization of liberal, uh, well, let's say mainstream Protestants, and in this case, the Catholic Church against the war. I've looked at some, but I thought of this, and, I, and it is worth mentioning, certainly, um, and it's probably having some political effect. On the end, I tried to look at what data we have, and most of these polls aren't broken down, war, the war-related polls you know, aren't broken down by religion. But in this case, I think the leaders are not speaking for the people. That is, it remains the case that the more, basically the more religious you are, the more conservative you are, the more Republican you are, the more pro-Bush you are, the more pro-war you are. So in this case, I'm not making a judgment on the merits, but I don't think the, 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 the actual you know, church-going Catholics of this country are much more pro-war than the Pope is, frankly. And in the liberal Protestant denominations do speak maybe there. That to some degree, they're speaking for their members, but those are small denominations compared to the, to the big ones and the undenominated ones, you know, the generic Bible churches and all, where they're with Bush. Now, look, they're not enthusiastic about the war. I mean, who is really, you know, enthusiast for war? And you can make a serious case that especially uh, you know, Christianity is not exactly a pro-war. It's been considered a very martial and military religion. This was one of the major complaints about it by various modern political thinkers. So it would stand to reason that there would be some tension and ambivalence in, even among conservative Christians about a war, especially a war that arguably isn't a response to aggression but is a preemptive war, etc. But I'd say, given that, actually, what's stunning when you look at the polls is it still is basically a good bet that if you go to a megachurch, outside Tulsa, Oklahoma, and if you go to a, what's the equivalent of a secular, what do secular people do in Bethesda, Maryland? What's that? A Starbucks, you know. Right. 
at a Starbucks in Princeton, in Princeton, in Princeton, New Jersey. Same class. Let's hold class constant. The parishioners at the megachurch in Tulsa are going to be more pro-Bush and vaguely, I mean, pro-war is not quite fair, but, you know, supportive of the notion that America probably has to do this than the secular uh, people down the street here at the Starbucks. So I, I think I accept the qualification. It's a fair point. And, you know, if the war goes badly, I mean, if, if the anti-war, if the religious anti-war movement takes off and gathers steam, all these things could change. But right now, I would say, despite uh, an impressive mobilization by liberal religious anti-war types, it doesn't seem to be translating down into the into the ranks. Professor Gregory? Uh, yeah, I agree with you that I think the liberal elites have oversimplified uh, Bush's evangelicalism. Um, but I, I guess I want to maybe question something about the messianism. Because um, I think it was you, actually, and if it wasn't, uh, correct me, but you made a great comment after the Republican primary debate about Bush's answer about his uh, favorite political philosopher vis-a-vis Gary Bauer's answer, both evangelicals, and yet Bauer emphasized Jesus as instructing people to care for the poor, et cetera, et cetera, whereas Bush's was a more personalist, private vision of his, Jesus changed his heart. And I wondered whether or not Bush's evangelicalism does shape something of this kind of personalism, where he feels like God, in his own authentic conversion, has prepared him for a time such as this, so the expression of his humility is very different than you would get from a Reinhold Lieber or from a John Courtney Murray or even from a Gary Bauer, where there's a more principled account of religion as opposed to a merely personalist notion of God's providence, which does seem fairly active within his own evangelicals. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I agree with your distinction between, let's say, Bush and Bauer and the different kind of... I think it was your distinction. Well, well, well that's, why, that's, why I, that's why I agree with it, you know? <laughs> There's nothing better than agreeing with people who are telling you back, you know, the <laughs> things you said. It's sort of why it's why teachers give extremely good grades, you know, to, to, to students who repeat their lectures. No, I think I think that is a, a fair point, and obviously to do justice to this, you'd have to think through and analyze this kind of, let's say, personalist form of religion that it seems to be much stronger today than it once was in America, and especially perhaps among Protestantism. But I would just say this: that one could, of course, have come to the opposite conclusion. That is. <laughs> I mean, it's precisely the personalism of, let's stipulate that we have some feeling for what Bush's religious faith is, which is a little presumptuous, but let's say to the degree it is this kind of a, a personal sense that he himself turned his life around through faith, that, 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 he, that the faith is extremely important to him, uh, that it teaches him a combination of humility and resolve. I mean, a kind of humility, you don't know what God wants, but a resolve that we've got to do right as you see right and try to improve yourself, and that seems to be kind of the spirit of his somewhat personalist evangelical Protestantism. But that does that make you... I mean, Gary Bauer is pretty certain of his political views precisely because, I mean, the personalism could make you less scary, if I can put it this way, to secular America, and not more scary. And in fact, if you had said to me two years ago, hey, well, Gary Bauer, that kind of religion's fine with secular liberals, you know, but Bush's personal kind of more therapeutic, more liberal form of Protestantism, that's what we should worry about, at least people would have been surprised by that. It doesn't mean that it's not a fair point or that maybe it's ultimately true, incidentally. So should he be more explicit about that or less explicit? Well, but here he just gets killed either way. So if he's more explicit, it's the way all he does is ever talk about Jesus, you know. And if he's less, ex- and if he's less explicit, you know, that it's, well, it's secretly he reads. I mean, Newsweek two weeks ago, he reads the Bible or something. I mean, this is Newsweek two weeks ago had a pretty fair piece by Howard Feynman, actually. I think it was just one week ago, actually. A pretty interesting article at the cover story. It was a Bush and God or Bush and Faith, I can't remember what it's called. 
And it, Feynman reports this kind of aha that Bush um, reads every morning uh, a devotional uh, book uh, by uh, Oswald Chambers, who was a Protestant uh, theologian who was, died in 1917 during the war. He was British, I guess, and, and was quite a popular preacher then and became more popular, I guess, after these uh, sort of devotional homilies, I guess one would call them, were published subsequently. Now, I actually don't, I didn't know much about this, and I read up, but I was interested by this, so I read up a little on Chambers and actually went out and bought uh, the book. I think, what's it called? Um, my was it? Right, my atmosphere for his highest, right. And, um, I mean, it is very... Uh, it's very mainstream, is the way I would put it. I mean, if you, you know, it's a very, self, kind of improved, very serious, earnest... Um, self-help's a little unfair, and I don't mean to characterize this, you know, this book I haven't really studied all closely, but a kind of earnest, improve yourself, scrutinize yourself, make sure you're, you know, really trying to think about what's right in these circumstances. It is not sort of pour over the book of Revelation and decide that, you know, there has to be a huge war in the Middle East so the end of, so the end of times can come. I mean, it, it, you would, one would have called it, I think, liberal Protestantism to some degree uh, uh, 20 or 30 years ago, and I'm sure there's, in fact, a big critique of it among many Protestants as being too kind of liberal and almost therapeutic and self-help. But it's, so it's ironic that precisely that kind of Protestantism is what's setting off all these alarm bells. Rabbi Dallin? Uh, Bill, I was wondering, to what extent do you think Joe Lieberman's religiosity, both in his, as a candidate and if he were to get the Democratic nomination, will be a factor, a major factor, not so much even his Jewishness, because the fact that I think the 2000 campaign indicated that uh, his orthodoxy was, was, was very uncomfortable for many liberal Democratic Jewish voters, especially secular ones, and I'm wondering to what extent, and if you juxtapose this with a war with Iraq and the Middle East, in which he's a war, I mean, a lot of that comes together. Well, that's, I mean, there's a lot going on, and a lot of cross-cutting currents in that. I mean, the great irony of 2000, one of the many ironies, of course, is, so the first Jew, you know, ever runs for president or vice president on a major party ticket. He's an Orthodox Jew, which is already such an amazing kind of bizarre fact. If, who would have predicted that 20 or 30 years ago? And what segment of Jews does the Gore Lieberman ticket do worst among, of course, Orthodox Jews? You know? <laughs> so, I mean, for all that the secular Jews were allegedly made uncomfortable by Lieberman, it didn't stop them from overwhelmingly voting for Gore Lieberman. And, and, and um, so I'm not sure how that really cuts. I mean, I do think that what was striking, again, was that one would have expected Christian resistance to Lieberman's Jewishness, and in fact, as you suggest, you got much more secular resistance to Lieberman's Jewishness. So that, I think, would confirm my general hypothesis. I don't know as a practical electoral matter whether it makes, it probably makes Lieberman a strong Democratic candidate if he could get the nomination because he cuts against the, you know, the image of the Democratic Party as out of touch with and unconcerned with uh, to religious voters. I, I would say uh, Stan Greenberg, who was one of Gore's pollsters, and was a smart guy, big, you know, very close to Clinton, originally a Democratic pollster, said he was struck by the degree to which Gore was clobbered because, I mean, in, especially in the South and in the swing states of Arkansas, uh, West Virginia, Missouri, because voters, unlike with Clinton, where they were a little suspicious that maybe this church going was convenient for him, and, you know, what was this? He liked singing the hymns, but how deep was it in his... So, whatever, he, he understood people like themselves, and he was able to get a chunk of that vote. He didn't get the majority of it, but he was able to get enough of that vote to hold those states. And the Gore, Greenberg said, their, their own surveys showed 
had a huge problem. They just they couldn't even imagine Al Gore, you know, sitting in the kind of church that they went to or participating in the kind of Bible study group that their that they or their wives participated in, and that this really clobbered him. And for all that he was the people versus the powerful, and he could run on Clinton's economic record, and Bush Cheney wasn't a very attractive ticket if you were a coal miner in West Virginia. It's just the cultural divide, the extent to which Gore was a secular, I mean, for all that he was from Tennessee, was really a secular Washington, D.C., Harvard, kind of upper middle class, you know, environmental, et cetera, et cetera, type that really kicked in big in the campaign, despite the pick of Lieberman. You, sir. Uh, um, given that you, we, we can't presume to know what Bush's religious, religious beliefs are, but you characterized him as a mainstream evangelical Protestant. Now, as a lifelong New Jersey resident, that strikes me as an oxymoron. Right. But, but if, if you're correct that evangelical denominations are now the majority representation of Protestantism in America, what do you think that biblical literalism core has to do with driving secularists away from religion altogether and driving the parties apart? Yeah, I mean, I think one phenomenon of the last 30, 40 years, I mean, I'm no expert on Protestantism and Protestant denominations, so I should be careful what I say here, but I mean, I think one of the phenomena of the last 30, 40 years has obviously been, this is true within religions, within faiths, it's certainly true within Judaism, for example, the collapse of the middle. Right? I mean, you know, half basically, to, very, to oversimplify a lot, you know, half the Jews have become entirely secular, or a certain chunk of them have become not, not, not Jews anymore. And the other chunk, and there's a question of how big that chunk is, have tended to become more, uh, more identified, maybe to some degree even more observant, et cetera. And I think that general phenomenon has been true that what we would have regarded as mainstream, moderate, liberal religion, certainly I think it's true among Protestants, that that kind of mainstream Protestantism has diminished in numbers, and people have either just left the fold or gone to more pers- more evangelical forms of Protestantism. All I meant when I said mainstream evangelical was was I just meant it descriptively, not as a kind of term of art. That even you know mainstream evangelical meaning Bush, who reads Oswald Chambers in a Bible study group that meets once a week. In this Dallas, in Dallas, Texas, and he goes to a big mega church in Texas. And religion is important to his life, but distinguishing it from real Pentecostalist, fundamentalist kind of, you know, which is a rather small part of of of, of Protestantism, and really is different from evangelical. So, um, but I mean, these are very fuzzy distinctions, and I'm not sure I'm being very precise. And well, but, but tell me, what's the, so what's the, the so well, the question? To, to the extent that, that you mentioned the ferocity with which he's been attacked right. because of his religious beliefs. Do you think that there's a general perception that he's more of a fundamentalist? And I mean, he goes to a giant Methodist church. You know, I wouldn't think of Methodist as an right. evangelical denomination. But well, Methodist is an evangelical denomination. It's not a fundamentalist denomination. I mean, one problem here is that evangelical and fundamentalist have been totally assimilated in the secular media, which is ridiculous, of course. Well, right. Right. I mean, by almost by. I mean, well, it's not ridiculous, but but it's in this state, you know, Methodists would be considered liberal Protestants. Well, they are. Well, they are a lot of places. The actual church. I mean, in, in Washington D.C., the actual church Bush often goes to has a liberal preacher and who's anti-war, as it happens. But, but there are plenty of even you know Methodists on, on, on both sides. But yeah, look, a lot of this is just ignorance on the part of secular Americans of these different forms of Protestantism and obviously of other religions and vice versa. And and uh, but that in itself perhaps shows the the divide. And um, no. Professor Arcus? You know, just to talk about David Dow's question, it, 
it used to be, it happens to often an intelligible question in the press to ask something like, is Joe Lieberman really an Orthodox Jew? Well, by the Orthodox, that's a perfectly intelligible question. The thought experiment for us would be, if that question is posed in our politics, is the reflex not likely to be, how dare you question what my religion is, I'm the best judge, I'm earnest about this. If that, that's not an Orthodox response, because the Orthodox would agree that there's a body it's a body of teaching here. Guess what you measure these things? And if that's the case, I think, just a thought experiment. What do you think? Would the reactions be along those lines? And if that's the case, would that indicate that what is won in our politics is uh, the rejection of orthodoxy, the rejection of the notion that there really are bodies of truth standing behind religious uh, commitment? Because what you described there before, I hadn't heard that response to Bush's State of the Union address, because in that line that these liberties are not our gift, but God's gift to human beings. That was the understanding of the Declaration of Independence. Oh, right. There's nothing sectarian about that. was the Declaration of Independence. But what you seem to be describing is a situation in which there's a disposition now to silence any, all expressions of religious sentiment and to drive it entirely out of the public square. That's a new level of ferocity and a new level of a civil war that I haven't uh, anticipated myself. Well, but I thought actually you were going in the opposite direction of the first part of your question, which is, which I would say, on, on the orthodox que orthodoxy question, I think the normal reaction of orthodox Jews would be that they're entitled to question Lieberman's orthodoxy, but non-Jews aren't, you know, and, <laughs> which is not an unintelligent point of view, actually, since, I mean, who are they to say what, you know, what an orthodox, now, of course, needless to say, uh, believe me, every orthodox, you know, uh, there are many, many gradations of orthodoxy in Judaism as there are in other religions, and, and, um, and they can have that debate, I suppose, you know, within themselves. But um, I think you're onto something, therefore, when you say, though, that what we now consider to be serious rel religious belief, well, not what we consider, what is serious religious belief, is in the American, modern, in the modern American context, somehow chosen, not inherited and that one gets to, I mean, that's literally true, obviously, in a, in a free pluralist society like ours, even if you inherit your belief, you somehow know that you, you could choose to, to reject it in a way that almost was unintelligible, you know, a couple of centuries ago, and certainly more than a couple of centuries ago. And secondly, um, and therefore, that, that colors the way in which the belief is held. So it's all liberal, in a sense. I mean, everything is sort of a choice, and one has to be tolerant of other people's choices. Um, but then the question becomes, if a, a larger and larger number of Americans are choosing, let's say, one set of beliefs, which we'll vaguely call uh, um, you know, sort of religious view of the world, and a large chunk of Americans are choosing another set of beliefs, which we'll vaguely call a pretty thoroughly secular view of the world, um, that's a pretty big deal for a political system. And it does seem to me to undercut a certain kind of com – well, certainly, let's put it this way, 50 years ago, the conventional view was, well, there's this common American civil religion. And that's kind of what binds us together. And it's sort of respect for religion. It's not too much enthusiasm about religion. But, you know, Eisenhower famously said, we need everyone should believe in God, but we don't need to worry too much about what the actual beliefs are. And, um, and that, that was kind of the American civil religion. That seems to me to be falling apart, actually. And now you have real religious believers <laughs> and real people who distrust religious belief and I just pose as a question, therefore, I mean, you know, kind of what does that do to our politics? How does that play out? One side could win over another side, obviously, if there's a clear majority. Right now, actually, it seems rather evenly balanced, and you see, you see that in our politics. Um, and, and what is the dynamic of that? And also just how unexpected it is. I mean, just no one really thought this is what American politics was going to look like, or even to some degree going to look like 
20 or 40 or 60 years ago. Uh, yes, you, sir, in the middle. Uh, uh, my, my question has to do with uh, the Constitution. Nowhere in the Constitution have I seen a mention of God, and it seemed to me that there was kind of an avoidance of that. And uh, I wonder if this religiosity, if I can call it that, and mind you, you persuaded me of an avoidance. Isn't that uh, tending to get into all of these various things so that is this a violation of the spirit of the Constitution? Well, but the spirit of the Constitution and the First Amendment to the Constitution obviously preserves the freedom of religion and therefore presumably uh, expects a certain amount of religion to be to exist in this country and therefore expects people with religious convictions, I take it, not to absent themselves from political life and probably expect some of them to get elected to political office and, and well, obviously, one can then say, well, but I'm going to separate my private religious views from my public duties. And obviously, people do to some degree. Uh, it'd be pretty hard to separate your, if your religious views told you what was you know, right and wrong at some fundamental level, to separate that from your public or, to, or taught you as it taught many liberals over the last 30, 40, 50 years that we had to care for the poor or that we had to have equal rights for all, no matter what the color of their skin. You know, you, you can't separate that from your public actions. So, no, I don't really agree that... I mean, clearly, the Constitution anticipates that we're not going to, and, and is set up so that we're not going to have the kind of religious strife, hopefully, that had characterized so many societies for the preceding centuries, um, people trying to advance their sectarian agendas through government. But it certainly didn't anticipate, I think, an exclusion of religious belief from the public square or from the hearts and minds of citizens. And, and, and no one's ever really thought that was characteristic, I would say, of America. Oh, sorry, do you want to follow up? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. But to take and make decisions on the basis of one's faith rather than on the Constitution is my concern. Well, but again, I mean, this is... One man's faith is another man's moral judgment, you know, and, and really, and obviously the Constitution doesn't tell you whether to go to war against Iraq, and it's a prudential decision. I don't think Bush is making that decision based on his faith, but to the degree that one's faith informs the notion that government should seek to help the poor, the weakest among us, and uh, informs Bush's compassionate conservatism, or informs uh, some liberals' uh, belief in equal rights or intolerance for everyone, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to tell people they're not, they, they can somehow separate their the grounds of their moral views from public policy, I think. You, sir. Thank you. As you know, Dr. Crystal, different religions and different subsects and religions have differing views about what constitutes a just cause for war. And indeed, in some instances, what makes war a necessity. Do you see any uh, linking of these beliefs with the differences in groups that you have defined? Yeah, I mean, that's, I don't know. I really haven't thought, that's a good question. I don't know that I've really thought that through at all. And it seems to me that um, there are various just war traditions. They seem to me to be, on the other hand, by, de by necessity, those traditions are always somewhat abstract, and therefore a huge amount still ends up hinging on whether, in fact, well, there is a real threat, for example, from Saddam Hussein or not, which is an empirical and practical judgment which has to be based on the character of his regime. Does he have these weapons or not? So that most traditions, I think, still depend a lot on an empirical 
judgment. So I guess I'm, I'm not convinced that the differences in views would, I mean, certainly the way these religious, people of certain religions might approach the question would be through a certain uh, just war tradition. But I, I guess I, I'm not convinced that it really colors the views. In that respect, I mean, since we as Americans can have a debate about whether we should go to war in Iraq, and it's pretty, a Catholic operating from a just war tradition is pretty understandable to a Jew who doesn't particularly have that tradition or to a secular American who doesn't much care what Thomas Aquinas said, uh, you know, 800 years ago. I mean, it's, it's still the, the kind of moral considerations, the political considerations do cut across these different religious traditions. I'd hate for the, um, for the event to end without Dr. Crystal getting a chance to witness the brilliance of our yeah. Princeton students. He's stuck with these Harvard students all the time. I am. <laughs> Uh, isn't there a student? Who, is that is that a student hand? Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. Fire away. The entire the entire burden of Princeton's reputation now rests. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This better be good. <laughs> but don't feel. Don't be nervous. You know. Right. Really. <laughs> okay. So in this respect, Princeton students are just like Harvard students. <laughs> Yeah, and this is an interesting, somewhat complicated point. Um, that is, if you, before 9-11, I would say there was a certain strain of thought, understandably, and I, I maybe correctly even, that among religious Americans, let's say religious Protestants that I know, for example, that, you know, when it was, there was a certain amount of sympathy to uh, religious Muslims who were fighting against secular governments that were suppressing them in some instances, uh, in the Middle East in the sense of, well, they're just trying to you know, live their religious lives. We in this country have the right to live our religious lives. They don't really in their uh, countries. And so there was, and in fact, in practice at the UN, for example, in some of these fights on social issues, there was often uh, a, a conservative Amer Republicans or conserv socially conservative Americans had more in common with people from socially, very socially conservative Islamic regimes in the Middle East than they did with, with secular regimes. I do think 9-11 changed a lot of that and at least raised up the, the question, uh, you know, the, the gap between the religions as opposed to the commonness of, of religion. One very interesting question, though, is how that plays out, obviously. Now, now, the president has been, you know, obviously bent over backwards not to make this into a religious war, as he has said a million times, and, you know, and has been very uh, 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 forthcoming in terms of, uh, trying to make clear that certainly Islamic Americans are as American as anyone else and, and that sort of thing. And, and I think he, therefore, very much doesn't want this to be an old-fashioned religious war. Um, but, I mean, it's a, good, it's, a, it's a fair point. I mean, if you really factor in a war, which whatever you want and don't want is still kind of a war of uh, America against I mean, not really against Islamic nations, since God knows Saddam is not exactly the Muslim ruler, but, I mean, but against Arab Muslim peoples. Um, how that plays out is a, big, is a big question. I mean, there I think the fact that, we, that Iraq is the first target actually helps 
the president truly make the case that, look, he's concerned about these brutal, bloodthirsty dictators with weapons of mass destruction. And in this case, he's concerned about a secular one who spent a fair amount of time killing devout Muslims in his country and indeed in the neighboring countries, you know. Uh, and indeed, the next on the list after Iraq is probably North Korea. I mean, not for war necessarily, but for a kind of confrontation. And there, too, that, of course, has nothing to do with, with that. It's just a Stalinist, uh, you know, kind of insane Stalinist state. So I, I guess I would argue that I myself have never accepted the Huntington Clash of Civilizations thesis, and I think Bush doesn't want to accept it. And I think, in fact, when you really think through these challenges, it's hard to see that I don't really buy the argument that the, the problem is Islam. I would argue that the problem is certain regimes, some of which have found a, an ability to use Islam for their own purposes, or some of these terrorist groups have for recruiting purposes. But even there, I would still put an awful lot of the blame on the political regime that has created circumstances in which uh, Osama can recruit effectively. I put some of the blame on us for letting him do this recruiting so effectively. So I'm not sure that's a, a, a very satisfactory answer. But you're right. I mean, if you throw into Islam, I mean, I look at Is this the end? Should I conclude with this thought? Well, we have another question. Okay, okay one more. This, this well, I'll just include this thought and then one question. I mean, I don't want to overstate, you know, my thesis here. I just really wanted to raise a question about this, this trend in American politics. If you think this trend is somewhat, however, combust, combustible, let's say, which I think it's fair to say, somewhat worrisome or somewhat at least uh, um, challenging to our traditional notions of how American politics should, should, should look, and you throw in then a big war or a series of wars which have some religious component to them, you obviously have a very volatile mix of things going on at once, which again, and what's most striking to me is just, you know, I you know, remember being in grad school and studying American politics as well as political theory, and if you had said that, you know, we're going to be sitting here and having a plausible discussion about, you know, the split between religious and secular in America, and then the big story in the Middle East is going to be Islamic fundamentalism, radical Islam, can it be suppressed, can it be tamed, can we help have an Islamic reformation? This was all so far from people's views just one generation ago, right, when religion was the past and, and the, the problem in the Middle East was Nasser and a bunch of, really Saddam, really, a bunch of secular, nationalist, anti-American types. And it really is a very good lesson in the, in the contingency, I'd say, of history, really, and that, you know, these trends that you think are so deeply uh, set and uh, unchangeable turn out to be very reversible very fast, for better or for worse. You look like a student. Mm -hmm. yeah, okay, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, on your website last week, David Brooks noted the uh, Yeah, well, the realignment of Jews to the right is a uh, project that <laughs> lots of people have spent a lot of time. The end times. Yeah, exactly. I, I'll believe it when I see it, you know. <laughs> but um, no, it could. I mean, it's a very interesting moment. I mean, I, I really think politically there is, there has been a gradual realignment of Jews. If you just again look at the data, I mean, younger Jews are more likely to vote Republican than older Jews. Younger male Jews actually are close to 50-50. Bush Gore was 80-20, but among Jewish men under 35, it was pretty close, 55-45, something like that. The gender gap, for some reason, among, within, among Jews, within Jews, that Jewish men, Jewish women, is greater than the gender gap 
among Christians. I don't know why that is, but uh, I myself blame it on Jewish women. But I guess <laughs> the, uh, well, there's the there's the headline in the prints tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> The, um, Brought in under the auspices of law and public affairs. <laughs> the um, so, but if you ask me to bet, I mean, I do think that um, yeah, I, I think there, Bush has a chance to actually break, get back up to Reagan's level. Let's say in 1980, when there was great unhappiness with Carter and the Jewish community, and I think Carter was held to about. I think Reagan got almost 40 percent of the vote. Anderson actually got about 15, maybe even 20 percent, and I think. Carter maybe only got about 42. I mean, Reagan almost ran even with Carter among the Jewish in the Jewish vote in 1980. I'm not sure Bush could run even with the Democratic candidate in 2004, but I think he could be competitive, and it will be a very interesting moment. I mean, one thing that just happened yesterday, well, it was just reported yesterday, it will be interesting to follow this Jim Moran, who's actually the congressman from Northern Virginia from the district next to the one I live in, uh, blamed this war that we're about to have on Jews um, and uh, at a, at a Talk at an anti-war. Oh, you do? I didn't see them. At a talk at an anti-war rally, I guess a week ago in Reston, Virginia. Um, we'll see. I mean, when Trent Lott said something that was, uh, this is what Republicans at least will say. Hey, when Trent Lott said something that was offensive and, and wrong, he was uh, deprived of his leadership position and really hounded by uh, not just the media, but by Republicans, actually, and by conservatives. Uh, is Moran going yeah, to pay any price? I mean, what does Nancy Pelosi, the leader of Jim Moran's party in the House, have to say about Jim Moran, maybe she said something today, I've been watching the news, but if you have a couple of incidents like that, and there is a sense that liberal Democrats in actual elected office, he's not just a kind of crank columnist for the nation or something, <laughs> not to criticize the nation, another worthy journal of opinion, um, you know, say, say things that sound more like Pat Buchanan than, 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 than like anyone else, and if the party is scared to repudiate him, but chooses not to, and Al Sharpton was running for president and is not repudiated by uh, mainstream Democrats. Yeah, you could have a dynamic. And Bush pursues, pursues at least a foreign policy that pro-Israel uh, Americans like. I think you could have a pretty big realignment. But I've also, you know, seen, uh, you know, uh, signs of this alleged forthcoming realignment before, and, and it's never followed through. It's, it's rarely come through, so I'm a little, I remain a little skeptical. But, yeah, if, I, if you ask me a bet right now, I think Bush could go from 20 percent to 40 percent of the Jewish vote in 2004. Please, uh, everyone, uh, join us at a reception in Dr. Crystal's honor just outside the room. And please join me in thanking Bill Crystal.